Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. Antarctica was the last continent to be colonised. This involved a race between nations for discovery and exploration. The harsh environment is not suitable for permanent settlements, so occupation has taken the form of research stations manned and run by different nations. As a result of the work of Australian explorer Sir Douglas Mawson, Australia claims 42% of the Antarctic Territory. Dr Estelle Laser was the first archaeologist to work at the site associated with Mawson's Australian Antarctic Expedition at Cape Denison on the Antarctic mainland. She's travelled to Antarctica seven times, including four summers camping and working on the ice at Cape Denison. She also spent a summer working on sealing sites at Heard Island in the sub-Antarctic. Estelle has previously talked to the thinking traveller about her work in Pompeii, for which she's widely known. Her pioneering work in Antarctica is therefore perhaps unexpected. She joins us today to discuss Mawson's part in Antarctic exploration. Lovely to welcome you back to The Thinking Traveller, Estelle. Thank you. So, Sir Douglas Mawson, how much of a role did he play in Antarctic exploration? Douglas Mawson was an extremely important explorer, especially from Australia's perspective. He went down to Antarctica first in 1907 with Sir Ernest Shackleton on the Nimrod and he and two others did a, a traverse where they went to look for the South Magnetic Pole and then he had his own expedition from 1911 to 1914, the Australasian Antarctic Expedition or AAE and that was the first large scientific expedition that Australia actually mounted after Federation. And he went back with the Banzari expedition, that's the British, Australian and New Zealand Antarctic Research Expedition, between 1929 and 31. And during those years, he claimed a huge part of Antarctica, about 42%, in the name of King George V, which was then transferred to Australia. So our enormous claim on Antarctica comes from Sir Douglas Mawson. He was also a geologist and he did some very important research. So is it important that we then preserve what he did and the sites that he used? Uh, yes, extremely important that we preserve the sites. It's very important to bear in mind that even though it's not the very distant past, it's a very important part of human history because the last period of colonisation was this period. So Antarctica, the real push for colonisation, started at the end of the 19th century. And we have this period from about 1897 to 1917, which is seen, it's described as the so-called heroic era. And that's when they really started to explore and investigate the Antarctic continent, which they knew nothing about. I mean, Antarctica was postulated as a place by Aristotle in the latter part of the 4th century BC as a counterpoint to the Arctic. So he called it the Antarctic, no one knew it existed. 
And really it was only with people like Cook in the 1770s that people got down towards the ice but not actually the continent. And then, you know, there was a push for whaling and sealing expeditions and they went further and further south. And then just simple events like uh, the gold rush in Australia encouraged people to come to Australia using the Great Circle Route. And as they swung south, they started to find sub-Antarctic islands. So the interest in Antarctica sort of increased during the 19th century and then the real exploration and push to occupy the land. And we can't occupy it permanently because it's an environment that's not really suited to human habitation, but that really started in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So to answer your question, we have very little evidence surviving, but we do have significant evidence and we need to preserve it because before we went into space, this was the last place that humans could examine and have adventures. So, so when did you first go there? So I first went down to Antarctica in 1984 uh, on an expedition to work on the site associated with Mawson's 1911 to 14 expedition. And we sailed down on a 21 metre yacht. So how much time did you then spend there? I've spent four summers down there and I've been back again uh, as a ship's historian. I've also worked on the sub-Antarctic island of um, Heard Island where American sealers and one Tasmanian worked in the 19th century and early 20th centuries. So can you tell us a little bit about Mawson's expeditions and the aims? Okay, so as I said, Mawson first went down with Shackleton in 1907 and they were looking for the South Magnetic Pole, which is different to the South Pole. It moves a lot because of fluctuations in the Earth's magnetic field. So they'd approached it from the south and he was now interested in approaching it from the north. At the same time, there was a race for the pole. So there was this joint interest in exploration and getting kudos for different nations and pushing forward our knowledge of an unknown continent, which they didn't even know was a continent at that point, and learning more about science. So Scott uh, was one of the people racing to the pole and he invited Mawson to go on his expedition. Mawson, as it turned out wisely, chose not to do that and instead mounted his own private expedition, the AAE. And he did a lot of really interesting things. First of all, he left with his men from Hobart on the 2nd of December 1911. So it was him and 30 expeditioners. They first went to Macquarie Island and they left a party of five to set up what was going to be the first radio transmission relay station in Antarctica. He then went south and Cape Denison's about 3,000 kilometres south of Hobart. He went south to set up a station. They wanted to set up three bases. And for days they sailed past ice cliffs and couldn't land anywhere. And eventually they found uh, a little opening and uh, uh, rocky promontories and a place they could land. So there was Boat Harbour and Cape Denison. And there they set up base. Mawson's party built a number of different huts 
workshop and a main hut together, then two huts for magnetic observations and a transit hut in 1913 for astronomical observations to work out the latitude and longitude of their site. His expedition was very successful in terms of they did a lot of science. They didn't know what the eastern part of Antarctica was like. They didn't know if it was a continent. They didn't know if it were just a series of little islands. So they did a lot of exploration in the summer. Various teams went sledging, so they either took Greenland huskies or they manhauled sledges. And Mawson went on a far eastern expedition with two men, Xavier Mertz and our Belgrade Ninnis, who were both dog handlers. And they unfortunately had a lot of problems. So Ninnis fell down a crevasse with a number of the dogs and their food and died. And then Mawson, with much less food and dogs, continued on with Mertz. There's a lot of discussion about what happened. They certainly cooked and ate their dogs. And some scholars have suggested that the husky livers um, are very high in vitamin A and they got vitamin A poisoning. Not everyone agrees with this, but they both got very, very sick. And uh, Ninus eventually succumbed and died. Mawson uh, cut his sledge in half and manhauled his way back to Cape Denison. And he was really unwell, like terrible things happened. His hair fell out, soles of his feet separated from the rest of mm. his foot, so he had to sort of mm. bind them back together. And he got back to Cape Denison just in time to see the aurora departing. <laughs> so they picked up the summer as they'd been waiting for them. Six men were left behind in a party to look for the missing Far Eastern sledging party. And when Mawson arrived back, he was in terrible state. And probably it was lucky he missed the boat because he probably wouldn't have survived the sea voyage. But they had a second unplanned year in Cape Denison and did a lot more work and a lot more research. And Mawson also, um, with the help of one of his expeditionists, uh, wrote about his work in a book called Home of the Blizzard. Cape Denison is actually the windiest coastal site on the planet. And his book's quite dour, and that's because he came back without his men. And from the time that he returned, he was dogged by suggestions that maybe he'd eaten his companions. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Thomas Keneally wrote a book called The Survivor, which is sort of vaguely, vaguely based on Mawson. Yeah, that would be a terrible thing to be living with. Yeah, it's an awful accusation. Nobody knows exactly what happened, but he's very detailed in his accounts of what did happen to his colleagues. So when you're going over there as an archaeologist now, what more are you looking for? I mean, a lot of this was detailed in history, wasn't it? So what are you now looking for? Yeah, so this expedition was incredibly well documented. So they all the men kept diaries. Mawson on his team had a photographer, Frank Hurley, who turned out to be a very valuable asset. Hurley fought very hard to go on the expedition and his mother, in fact, tried secretly to put the kibosh on it by sending Mawson a letter saying that her son wasn't up to it. He had weak lungs and stuff like that. But Hurley didn't know about this, but he managed to convince Mawson to take him and he was fearless. He took photographs of everything and he 
did a lot of cinematography. He did a lot of experimental photography. He documented the site really within an inch of its life. They wrote about everything. They published everything. And their books, there are several books that Mawson and expeditioners wrote about the journey. So you ask, why why would you do archaeology? It's the recent past. What can you possibly learn? What people say they do and what they actually do is actually quite often very different. And certainly in this case, what we learn is sometimes things that perhaps the expeditioners didn't want us to know and sometimes things that they just didn't think were worth documenting or they weren't that interesting. So we get a very different idea of the expedition and the expeditioners. And um, certainly we've learnt a great deal from doing the archaeology, not life-changing things, but little details. So, I mean, how much of the site has survived? I mean, has it been bashed around by the wind and and the climate? Yeah, it's quite a difficult place to live and work. The hut was often in the winter covered in snow, which protected it. But um, little ice particles coming down and the catabatic winds which come down off the ice cap, they blast out the soft grain of the wood. So the hut's quite worn down. And in the summer we have freeze-thaw cycle which doesn't do artefacts a world of good. So is climate change making any of it worse? Uh, definitely, yeah. So and it's definitely happening. The temperature's going up. So in 2010, part of the Mertz Glacier to the east of Cape Denison carved into a huge iceberg, which by the end of 2011 sort of jammed itself into Commonwealth Bay, which made it very difficult for conservation expeditions to go there. But just just the increase in temperatures, yes, it's definitely putting artefacts at risk. So how do you work in those conditions? So what we've been doing, so there's work inside the huts and then outside the huts. So What's really interesting, as I said, the landscape's cultural. So one of the things that's really interesting to look at is the scatter of artefacts across the site. Because Cape Denison is so isolated, it's had relatively few visits since it was abandoned in 1914. And we can usually see evidence of those. The other sites, and I have to say, it's um, one of the historical sites listed in the Antarctic Treaty list of historical sites. And there are only six huts that survive and all the other ones have been largely visited and cleaned up. So this one retains a lot more of the original features of the expedition. So we can actually learn a lot more about the behaviour and the activities of the site. So doing archaeology is quite important there. So outside the huts, we did site surveys. So using electronic distance measuring devices and sometimes just photographic surveys. So on the few days, and there are very few days of the year when it's not windy. My first season, we set up tapes, you know, like measuring tapes, so that I could take photographs and actually um, measure exactly where they were. And even though wind wasn't a problem on those days, penguins were. So they'd just walk across the site and shift the tapes all the time. I did see one (laughs) do a perfect limbo under a tape one day. So that made it very difficult. So we stopped doing that. And um, mostly nowadays, of course, you can use GPS. It's very easy to do. Inside the huts, we did remove ice and snow. So Mawson's huts, they were filled with ice and snow, about two thirds. This workshop was fully filled in the main hut mostly filled. The back third wasn't the the southern end. 
it had been cleaned out, the workshop was cleaned out in 1978. So what we did in the early excavation work was using just normal tools which are percussive and can damage the artefacts. So we decided on different approach. The ice and snow inside the huts, it's post-occupation sterile deposit but very interesting to learn about the history of the hut's post-occupation and the microclimate inside the hut, which is very important for preservation purposes, for conservation work. So we did ice cores, so, um, which we published in Polar Record. So I worked with glaciologists at the University of Tasmania and they taught me how to do ice cores. So we did vertical and horizontal ice cores to learn about the microclimate inside the hut. And then we used power tools. So I had um, a chainsaw operator, Chainsaw Ted, who was very, very good at using a chainsaw. And he could identify objects floating in the ice before they were actually hit by the chainsaw. And then we could use variable speed angle grinders to then remove them and just get the um, get them ablate outside so we could work on them. So, yeah, very different techniques for doing archaeology than we normally get. So you work in Pompeii a lot, working on human skeletal remains. So so is it completely different? I mean, how different is it working in Italy and Antarctica? Oh, well, completely different. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, you have to go down by boat, which takes considerable amount of time. My first journey was three weeks each way by sea. We don't have a base there, so getting there is really difficult. So it's often boats and helicopters and quite expensive to get there so you know don't have a lot of expeditions that go down and you can only really go down in the summer and we camp on the ice so very very different and the sites are very different so Pompeii is an amazing site I mean it's preserved as the result of a mass disaster and preserved in the material that was erupted out of Mount Vesuvius which has protected the site and preserved it in every single detail whereas Mawson's Huts is an abandoned site and it was a private expedition and because they stayed for an extra year, they needed to recoup as many of their costs as they could so they took away everything that they thought was of value. So what we have left behind is what they really considered to be rubbish, which is the bread and butter of archaeology, but it's a very different kind of site. And also in Pompeii I work on the human skeletal remains and what we have, even though we've got every aspect of the site preserved, the people that I work on are unnamed individuals, whereas at Wilson's Huts, I know who everyone was. I mean, in Pompeii, we know the names of people. We have signet rings, we have um, graffiti, election graffiti, um, we have wax tablets with people's accounts, so we know who they were, but we can't relate any names with specific individuals. Whereas at Mawson's Huts, there were 18 people in the first year and seven in the second year, and we know their jobs, so we can relate specific artefacts to specific individuals. And we can learn a lot about them. So things that they never put in their historical records. So, for example, inside the huts, the expeditioners very thoughtfully, they had two layers of bunks. Mawson had his own separate cubicle, so it was quite hierarchical. And they put their names, they painted the names on the bunks. In the second year, they changed the real estate around a bit because the best real estate was near the stove. 
And so they actually put their initials on those bunks so we know how they moved around. But we also know how they personalised their space. So photographs of their loved ones and little precious items they took away mostly. Sometimes they forgot them. So Eric Webb, who was the magnetician in the first year, he was from New Zealand and his university badge from Canterbury College in Christchurch is still up there in his bunk. Madigan, who was the meteorologist in the two years that he was there, amazingly on his bunk, he's got a picture he's cut out of a magazine of roses, which is absolutely not what you'd expect from a remote hero. And of course, this era is known as the heroic age of exploration. And we have, it was definitely boys' own men's adventures. And what's really lovely is that we're able to recast some of these remote figures as just normal people who were missing home and plants and things that they might have loved. Madigan on his bunk, which I think is really lovely, there's a photograph, so quite a few of them engaged in photography. And it's very, very faded. But if you look at it, you can actually see an image of what would have been outside in the summer if there'd been a window. So there's rocks and seals. So he's virtually punched a window into his wall, which I think is really lovely. We get a really good sense of these people. And Mawson's cubicle had a series of prints on the wall, so colour prints. So one's Fragonard's Girl on a Swing, kind of unexpected for this very dour-sounding man. There was some strange image of, like, Dutch refugees with a fire behind them. And the third one, which is this slightly risque image of a naked young nymphat <laughs> making a daisy chain, but um, looked over from a, a tree by a fawn playing the panpipe. So it's classical, so it's all right. But really interesting and unexpected. And I think that's one of the things, you know, when you say, what can we learn from archaeology that we don't learn from the historic sources? We start to get a sense of these people as human beings. And I think that's a really valuable thing to take away. How did they cope mentally? Did, did they all survive the isolation or did some of them struggle with it? They found ways to entertain themselves and there were definitely tensions. I mean, we've got the diaries of a lot of the men and you can imagine it would have been quite difficult. They're living incredibly close to each other. So, and that's one of the weird things that you're in the least occupied part of the world. It's the place where you're going to have the least privacy ever in your life and that's certainly what I found when I've been down there too because you're kind of forced to be very close with your colleagues. So they mostly coped okay except in the second year Mawson was horrified when he came back and there were these six people on the search party for him, one of whom came from the boat. His name was Sidney Jeffries and Mawson had actually rejected him as an expeditioner in the first year of the AAE And he'd been very wise as it transpired because Jeffries did succumb to incredible mental illness. He was a wireless operator. One of the amazing things about this expedition was it was the first to use radio in Antarctica. And they had a little bit of success in 1912, but not a great deal, partly because the radio masts blew down. They re-erected them in 1913 and then they had much, much better capabilities and were able to relay messages throughout that year. Mawson sent to his fiancée, Paquita Del Prat, 
saying, you know, that he was in terrible shape and most of his hair had fallen out and she was released from the engagement if she wanted to be and she sent back a message saying, awaiting your hellless return. But Jeffrey's over time became increasingly unstable and he was sending messages back going, everyone's insane except me. <laughs> and uh, eventually he was found out. They removed him. They had to really isolate. I mean, he needed to be extra isolated and Bickerton took over the radio. But you can imagine being stuck there for a whole year with someone who's incredibly mentally unwell. I mean, he was yeah. put into asylum when he came back to Australia. So it was very problematic. He lost all interest in personal hygiene mm. and Mawson tried to encourage him to wash because you can imagine you can't yeah. underestimate how important it is to be a bit clean when you're stuck that close to other people. You can definitely still smell things in Antarctica. And so he even offered him a special space. So Frank Hurley had built a tiny little dark room, like a broom cupboard, really, which he offered Jeffries to do his ablutions, but there's no evidence he did that. The dark room doesn't seem to have been used that much in the second year. And the dark room is, in fact, another place where you get a very good sense of how the expeditioners worked. So Frank Hurley was a force of nature without a doubt. He used the darkroom to develop his prints and he used cinefilm as well. And um, he had a little sloping desk and he'd written in pencil very, very neatly above it, near enough is not good enough. Hmm. He and Hunter, who were good friends, made a gaming wheel which we found in there called the Hunt Hoylet Wheel. They called, uh, Frank Hurley's nickname was Hoyle. And this was a gaming device. They, all expense was spared in the manufacture of this. It was just a piece of tin um, which they'd stuck a piece of paper on either side and divided it up with numbers. And with this wheel they managed to divest their fellow expeditioners of chocolates, candles and eventually their underwear till Mawson put a stop to it. Right. Um, but <laughs> the other thing that was done in the in the darkroom was devising entertainments like little plays and operas and stuff. So they kept each other amused. They had a gramophone. They loved music. We actually found one of their records broken. It was the Kaiser Frederick March played by the Black Diamonds Band in London. Very interesting pre-World War One sort of choice of music. Maybe wouldn't have been so popular after World War One, Will you go back there? If I get a chance, I'd certainly go back in a heartbeat. Yeah. So you feel there's still a lot more to learn? Oh, there's, yes, of course, huge amount. Every time we go there, we learn new things because the snow ablates differentially each year. So things appear and disappear even within a season. So we've had like enormous seals appear, like one huge elephant seal carcass appeared right next to the hut. It was freeze dried and then vanished. I only ever seen it once. <laughs> and we track them and we track the changes over time. Uh, and there's so many things still to discover. In 1997, on the ice cap about six kilometres away from the hut, a private expeditioner found a husky, one of Mawson's huskies, which had died. It was freeze-dried. We brought it down because the paws were blowing off. There was just one paw sort of <laughs> some metres ahead of the others and two completely vanished. And the doctor and I did a bit of an autopsy on the dog. So it had been severely wind-blown, its ears had blown off, but the eyes were still in the sockets. So what did it die of? Just old age? or? Uh, I 
don't think so. We could see some of the internal organs, so the heart and lungs and the intestines we could still see. Its teeth were very, very worn uh, down to the pulp cavity in some cases uh, because they're eating frozen ice yeah. and food. So that wears their teeth down, which does shorten their lives. It had huge muscle attachments because it was pulling heavy loads and it had suffered a broken back leg. So there were two bits of bone were broken. They'd tried to heal, spurs had grown, but a bit of muscle had worked its way between them so it couldn't heal. So the dog would have almost certainly had a limp, which might well have slowed it down. It was a male dog. So I don't think it died of old age, but certainly they worked very, very hard. And, you know, there were a lot of stresses put on those dogs. They don't, I mean, that's been known that um, those working dogs didn't have long lives. And, of course, the ones that went on the sledging journey had particularly short lives. The ones that didn't fall in the crevasse were all eaten. Okay. So can you tell us about Mawson's huts in Tasmania? Yes. So very few people, I guess, will be lucky enough to go down to Antarctica. There are very few tourist expeditions down there and you can't always land because the conditions don't always allow it. I think in 2013 it opened. It's a one-to-one replica of the hut. So the heritage carpenters who'd worked on the site studied photographs and plans. They imported from Finland the same materials, Baltic pine and Oregon, and they had hut remade exactly the same. Um, The configuration's the same, the rooms are the same. They've filled it with appropriate, some of the old material, just to give a sense. It's about 200 metres from where Mawson's party actually set off on their adventure. So at some point, people will be able to go there. Not at the moment, of course, because of COVID-19, but... Um, down to Tasmania. To Tasmania, yeah. Yes, well, Tasmania has very strong links with Antarctica. A lot of voyages, I mean, the harbour's perfect. It's a deep and protected and huge harbour. So sealing and whaling went there. A lot of the early expeditions from the 19th and early 20th century went down there. So there are a lot of links. For example, Roald Amundsen, who was the first down to the South Pole, when he returned, he went into Hobart on the 8th of March 1912, went to the GPO and sent a telegraph to the King of Norway to say he'd been successful. And because he didn't want anyone to know about his successful uh, trip down to the pole, before the King of Norway found out, he actually forced his men to stay on the boat (laughs) for three days until it became public. So Tasmania and Hobart in particular have huge links with Antarctica. They're the gateway to the south. So if you have any interest in Antarctica... There's so many links there. The Australian Antarctic divisions at Kingston, near Hobart, and they still um, have their expeditions from there. They still leave. And up until a few years ago, they still would have their expeditions departing like they did in the past with brass bands and streamers. So it's a long tradition there. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller. 
a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.